Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 331. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have got a cracking show. Well, every show is cracking. But this week and next week, we are doing the best short fiction for the British Science Fiction Association. You can still vote until the 14th of April if you want to kind of do that. But we are going to play the four stories from what are up for this award this year. And as I sometimes do, right at the end, after the credits, I've got a little section on one of those secret projects that I mentioned in the Metacast way back in December. I'm now free to talk about it, so you can have a listen to what actually it is. But before all that, beginning of the month, Art, have a look at it, by Jan Ditlef. And Jan did a story, a kind of picture, a few few months ago, I was looking enough to kind of snag one from Jan, and it was the one where they were kind of hover bikes looking at the kind of space depot, and actually we're very pleased with Farfetch Fantasies as well, I've snagged one for there for the first launch from Jan as well, and have a look at this work, man, it's just tremendous, do you know what I mean? Oh, Jan, thank you so much for this. Big thank you to Adam to kind of sort this out, I once did it, I think when a but I was keen, a <laughs> keen young lad, and it takes some doing to get it all pulled together. So a big thank you to Adam for, for doing that. This is what we have in today's show. We're just going to play two stories. Like I say, these are the first two, and then next week we'll play the, two, the, the second two, which are in for this British Science Fiction Awards short story. First one up is Saga's Children by E.J. Swift. Then we're going to go straight in and play Boat in Shadows by Tori Tuzlow. And like I say, you can still vote for the British Science Fiction Awards short stories. These are always kind of like a little runner-up towards, you know, like the, the Hugos and the Nebulas as well. But it's kind of worth noting, you know what I mean? They're kind of some crack and stories. Oh man, what stories are in here? 
And I wanted to say a big thank you to to everyone that's kind of sorted this out and getting it, you know, because we've had a lot of kind of what eyes to cr- eyes to dot and T's to cross to kind of get it sorted out. So a big thank you goes out to everybody that sorted this out. So the first one is Saga's Children by E.J. Swift. I'll give you a little heads up with E.J. Swift. E.J. is a writer of a speculative fiction represented by Zeno Agency. She's inspired by writers who bring the extraordinary to the ordinary. And for as long as she can remember, she's been making up stories from the ridiculous to the epic. Although her work always contains element of fantastical, she came to write in science fiction by accident. Her debut novel, Osiris, from Delray UK and Nightshade Books, is set in a far future ocean's metropolis, a failed utopia where or whose inhabitants believe that they live on the last city of Earth. What a cracking premise for a story, man. <gasps> Go on. Her short fiction has appeared in Interzone magazine and in anthologies. The Best British Fantasy 2013 and Pandemonium, The Lowest Heaven. There you go. This story is narrated by Trendy and Sparks. Trend. Oh, just gravitas. That's what it is, sir. Gravitas. Born in Texas and transplanted to California, Trend has jobs or had jobs ranging from army medic to veterinarian technician, freelance clown to kids. <laughs> Shows puppeteer. Nothing has made me even more happy as voice acting. From video games to narrating stories, voice performers are conduits to magic and imagination. There you go, Trent. Wow. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Saga's Children by E.J. Swift You will have heard of our mother, the astronaut Saga Vermadal. She is famous, and she is infamous. Her face... Instantly recognizable, appears against lists of extraordinary feats, firsts and lasts and onlys. There are the pronounced cheekbones, the long jaw, the pale hair cropped close to the head. In formal portraits, she looks enigmatic, but in images caught unaware, perhaps at some function, talking to the administrator of the CSSA or the Moon Colony premiere. In situations, in fact, where we might imagine she would feel out of place, she's animated, smiling. In those pictures, it's possible to glimpse the fetid adventurer who traversed the asteroid belt without navigational aid. We knew her only once, on Ceres. You will have heard what happened on Ceres. Ours is one of many versions of Saga's story. Widely distributed are a number of official biographies. You can easily find another few dozen from less reputable sources. She is the subject of documentaries and immersions, avatars and educational curricula. We were not consulted in their production, but then we did not know her. We knew only her contradictions, of which there were many. One small but significant example, she renounced her European passport in order to gain Chinese citizenship, yet she gave each of us a traditionally Scandinavian name. We can say for certain that Saga was born in Umeå, Sweden, where in winter the darkness lies low and thick and heavy, and the snow crunches underfoot with that particular sound heard only on earth. Ula, the oldest of us, remembers Umeå's snow. She remembers the flakes falling on her head and the cold, tingling sensation as they melted through her hair into her scalp. At least, this is what she says, and so we agree this is how it was. We know that Saga grew up in Umeå with a single mother. The biographies depict her as an exceptionally clever child, excelling in the fields of science and mathematics, a solitary creature, decisive, sure, 
In some editions, Saga herself is quoted. It was when I saw the lights for the first time, the Aurora Borealis, the most beautiful thing on earth. But it wasn't on earth. That's when I knew what I wanted to be. So she did what every child who wishes to be an astronaut must do. Saga taught herself Mandarin. By age 16, she was fluent. She applied to the most prestigious university in Beijing to study astro-engineering and graduated with top marks in her year. She was promptly accepted as a trainee astronaut in the Chinese Solar System Administration, a move almost unheard of for Europeans, and especially at such a young age. From there, her career took off in meteoric fashion. News of her escapades was celebrated across worlds. She mapped the Martian planet. She led the first missions to Jupiter's moons. The biographies are less interested in Saga's domestic life, if we can refer to it as such. And even between us, we're not entirely settled on the details. We were raised by our fathers and grandmother. We knew Saga only through occasional communication from the outer planets, and nothing of one another's existence. She sent us the debris of space. In our bedrooms, we stored asteroid crystals and jars of red dust from Mars. We dreamed of Saga sailing through the stars, tailed by comets. In her transmissions, she would tell each of us the same thing. She loved us. We must work hard. Seek wisely. Dream deeply. Her hologram, flickering gently the way we imagined ghosts might, would flood us with bewilderment. We wanted to touch her, but when we put our fingertips to hers, there was nothing but air. Since we found one another, we have spent many hours puzzling over the mystery of our existence. We do not mean this in an existential manner, although, of course, we ask those questions as much as the next human being. The mystery we share is something more personal. We would like to know why Saga chose to create us at all. Ula's conception must have been an accident. Still early in her career, it was not a good time for Saga to have a child, and an abortion would have been more practical. Ula was born in Umeo, or says she was, as she remembers Snow. But her father brought her up in Beijing, where, we imagine, he lived out his life awaiting Saga's return. He waited a long time. But the greater question is why she was born at all. Could Saga have been unaware of her predicament until it was too late? How had she failed to take precautions? Five years later, Per appeared on the moon colony. He may have been intended, although a relationship with his father was not. Nonetheless, Per's father did his best until Per reached sixteen, upon which date his father moved to Mars, we imagine, to search for Saga. He searched a long time. Per grew up among spacefarers, pilgrims, adventurers, criminals on the run, ambassadors, colonists, and writers— all passed through Moon and recounted their tales whilst Pear, in his first paid job, served them cups of mulled moonshine. None of us were astronauts, but we have traveled. It is true that much of our journey was done before we were born. Ula went to the moon and back, the size of a fingernail. Pear went to Mars and felt its heavy gravity pulling him down against the lining of Saga's womb. Signy, we believe, was conceived on a ship orbiting Europa under Jupiter's yellow gaze, and later returned to Earth and entrusted to the care of Saga's mother in Sweden. Signy is the only one of us to have known our grandmother. It was in the year preceding Ceres that we learned the truth. Saga had recorded a transmission on Mars where she was readying her latest expedition to the dwarf planet, which at the time was being prepared as a mining center for the asteroid belt. Cirrus would cement China's wealth and fund the Republic's empire for a long time to come. 
We had a hazy awareness of these events, but if we're honest, we did not tend to pay much attention to the expansion. You have to understand that it's a painful thing to consider the world our mother had chosen over us. Most of the time we preferred not to think of other worlds at all. We were trying to live our lives as unobtrusively as we could and avoid people discovering the identity of our mother. Of course, we couldn't help our dreams. We were to discover that we have very different lives. Per is a shuttle engineer. We assume he inherited most of Saga's genes. Ula teaches the old earth art of yoga and works primarily with pregnant women. Signy is employed by the Earth Restoration Commission and travels to blighted patches of ocean or forestry. We thought it interesting that we had each taken a restorative vocational pathway. We were feeling for one another's personalities on that first night. Saga had contrived for the transmissions to reach us at the same moment across our locations of Moon Colony, Tianjin, and the Indian Ocean. It arrived with pear over breakfast, spinach and eggs, he always had them poached, Ula received it when she returned home from an intensive Bikram class. She had been working on her own practice that day, and her mind was still revolving through salutations. Signy was the last to view it, from a cabin of a ship, which, despite Signy's best efforts, smelled of stale sweat and salt, as did her clothes. The transmission was short. Saga was in uniform, with the Ren arrow and crane wings of the CSSA logo visible at her collarbone. There was nothing to suggest where in the solar system she might be, but we were shortly to find out. Quite calmly, Saga delivered her revelation. It is time for you to meet one another, she said. She knew where we were, which surprised us. She also knew what we did, which surprised us even more. She invited us to join her next year on the space station orbiting Ceres, from where she would be leading an anniversary expedition down to the surface. She did not clarify the nature of the anniversary, but later we learned that the first space probe sent to Ceres had been sent by NASA several centuries ago in 2015, when NASA was still a guiding force. What did we feel watching Saga's transmission? We were bewildered by her. What did she mean by telling us we were multiple? She had thrown our lives into turmoil. How could we not hate her a little for it? Were we angry? Yes. We suppose we were angry, too, although we did not admit to anger when we united. Not at first. We were in awe. Saga inspired awe. She inspired admiration. Listening to her low, hypnotic voice throwing our lives into turmoil, we could only gaze upon the famous eyes, the color of an ocean on a stormy day, as the biographies described them, and feel ourselves slowly losing oxygen, or perhaps we were injected with oxygen, high on it, at once starved and sated, propelled into a delirious state that made us not ourselves or more purely ourselves than ever before. Our heartbeats quickened. We sweated minerals. Our mouths were dry, but we wanted to break down and sob. We wanted carpets and cushions to soak up our tears. Saga wanted us there. She did say this. Our memories are united on this point. Saga wanted us to witness the expedition to Ceres. She was excited to have us there, together. Later, when we reflected on the transmission, we realized that she did not say the word together, but she was excited to see us there. Have us or see us? Does it make a difference? We think it does. There was no question of not going. We had some concerns, the political climate being somewhat unstable since the revolutions on Mars and rumors of possible war, but it was not enough to deter us. We quit our jobs or took extended leave. We met our new siblings on the moon. 
Pear was there, and it made sense to travel together, even if we would be in extended sleep. At first we assumed we would want to ride out the long journey, using the time to get to know one another. But Pear explained that that would not be possible. Ships were not equipped to entertain passengers, and hibernation was cheaper and actually far more comfortable. We understood, but it felt a little strange when he used the word passengers. Perhaps we had been thinking of ourselves as being like Saga, as though we had absorbed something of her spirit after all, but we were not astronauts. We would be civilians, not even immigrants, largely a nuisance, and only undertaking the journey because Saga Vermedal had ordered it and footed the bill. It was when we saw the cost of our trip that we realized the extent of Saga's influence. In the week before the flight, we talked about ourselves and about Saga. We compared our fathers and our bone structures and the color of our irises. Signy had Saga's nose. Ula did not, but she might have done before she changed it. Per and Ula had inherited her broad shoulders, we decided, plucking up images. We knew when we finally saw her in person, we would be studying every detail, comparing her physique with our own, adjusting the swing of our step a little to match hers. We agreed that there were things that must be said to Saga. We would be calm. We would not air our grievances like a committee, but we would ensure that Saga understood what we wanted to tell her. It was difficult to find a common language to describe our loneliness. Signy favored metaphors. She was poisoned, she said. She was a bird whose migrational compass had been distorted and no longer knew where to fly, and so flew everywhere, unable to find home. She was a penguin in the Antarctic gone mad, one of those ones that wandered inexplicably out onto the ice sheets where nothing awaited them but starvation. We considered Signy's metaphors and felt that the penguin was not quite right. Penguins were too close to comedy, and this was a sad, unfortunate matter. We agreed that Signy should not mention the penguin. The bird, we said, was a better analogy. Pear talked pragmatically about the events of his life. His partner had left him. She said he did not know how to love her or even what love was. It was she who pointed towards his peculiar childhood. Brought up amongst adults, she said he had never been innocent. It was his mother's fault, she said. His mother had plucked out his heart and hurled it among the stars, and the stars were cold things, whatever people said. Love to his mother meant a word traveled through a vacuum, uttered by a hologram. How could that be love? Now there was another woman in Pear's life, a slender girl from Mars, but Pear feared it would go the same way. Ula explained that she had been obsessed with pregnancy, but would never be able to have children. It was not that she was infertile, this was a thing in her head. Ula had seen a therapist once a week for the past three years. She had told the therapist of our mother, the astronaut, who was, without doubt, the origin of this affliction. She told the therapist that the idea of bearing her own child was at once abhorrent and the only thing she wanted in life. She did not need a partner. She would happily purchase the requisite DNA, but something was holding her back. She taught yoga for pregnant women, gazing at their swollen bellies. She dandled the babies of friends, and without exception the babies fell in love with her, laughing and squealing with delight. But after handing them back to their parents, Ula would run out of the house or the playgroup or the coffee shop and breathe in and out of a panic bag, paralyzed for hours in the grip of terrible attacks. Despite our disparate lives, we found something in common, a series of disastrous relationships. We agreed that Saga had cost us love in our adult lives. We were dysfunctional. We would tell her this. 
We were welcomed aboard the orbiting station above Ceres by a CSSA official. He did not mention Saga, which we thought strange, but invited us to a viewing platform where we could see the dwarf planet drifting softly below. He brought refreshments, and there he left us. We surveyed Ceres with dubious eyes, knowing this sphere of rock and water was the latest thing to have a hold over our mother. Down there was her vision of love. We saw a white planet, a cream planet, a planet with pale lemon sorbet swirls. We saw veined marble. We saw old, polished bone. We pointed out to one another dark spots where smaller asteroids had crashed into the planet's surface. We pontificated aloud that Saga's mission would be dangerous, whatever it was. We theorized on likely locations for the mining base. We knew nothing, but believed we must say something. We had to reassure ourselves of our right to be aboard. We were passengers. We were nervous. She entered the viewing platform alone. Our mother, the astronaut, in our sights for the first time since our births. There was the tall, lean figure. There were the eyes, the color of an ocean on a stormy day, flecked with recklessness, just like the documentary said. And as soon as she appeared, we knew we had been right to be nervous. It was clear that Saga was not expecting us. She recognized us in the way that we might recognize a celebrity from a photograph. Disorientation, followed by a slow comprehension. She looked shocked. Yes, we agreed afterwards that she looked shocked. She said, What are you doing here? It was a horrible moment. Taken aback, we rushed to explain. The invitation, the transmission. We had replied. Had she not received our replies? We did not like to say, had she not paid for our flights, arranged our stay, organized all of this? Gradually the shock faded from her face. Of course, of course, she smiled. But we were thrown, obviously, by this peculiar greeting. Struck by a terrible shyness, we felt our tongues grow huge and clumsy. How should we introduce ourselves? How should we greet her? We agreed before that we would address her as Saga, but now alternate possibilities ran through our heads. Mama? Muchin? Mom? We were stunned by the lean, stark beauty of her face. Her youthfulness shocked us, although we knew, we had read, that she'd had no restorative work or even enhancements, as many of the astronauts did, to make them faster, sharper, better. We wondered if she were real. We wondered if she might live forever. We wondered why she had borne us and what we were doing here, but all the things we planned to say evaporated. Saga spoke in Mandarin, although Signy swears there was a moment when we all digressed into Scandi. She said our names. Ula, Pearl, Signy. Look at you. I'm so happy you could come. But that moment of shock? She asked us questions. She wanted to know about our little insignificant lives, and all we wanted to know was her, her inner life, her private thoughts. Alone in her ship in the outback of space, did Saga ask the questions we all asked? Did Saga wonder where she came from, if there was a god? We wanted to know, but did not dare ask. We did our best to make ourselves interesting, gave her the answers we thought she wanted to hear. The evening passed too quickly. Over dinner, Saga told us about the mission— she told us Cirrus would become the most important mining station in the solar system, a source of water and fuel for travelers back to Earth and out to Jupiter and Saturn. We watched the way she held her chopsticks, scooping up noodles with easy elegance. We mirrored her gestures. We were offered wine, but Saga took only water. 
Her storm at sea eyes surveyed us, smiling. We thought she was pleased, and this gave us a feeling of warm satisfaction. The next day we watched her descend to Ceres. She had her own ship, and it was built, she had told us, to her exact specifications. She gave us some technical details that we did not understand. We watched Saga's ship land, and the others of the mission followed. Saga appeared first on the surface link. We watched her suited figure lope across the surface of the planet. In the low gravity, she appeared like a mythical being gliding over her territory. The expedition team were to meet another team stationed on the surface. They had been drilling for samples for some months and would perform the extractions today. Big results were expected. Before the astronauts could reach the drilling station, the transmission cut out. There was confusion in the room. What had happened to the link? An engineer came and tried to fix it. She could not get a picture. We watched, silently, hoping everyone would forget we were there. But, of course, they did not. After a few minutes, we were told that there had been a technical mishap. Nothing to worry about, only the connection. And were escorted firmly from the room. We went to the viewing platform and stood about aimlessly. Ceres hung, mute and ghostly, against her velvet backdrop. This was how we came to witness Saga's exit. We saw a pinpoint of fire, small but distinct on the surface of the pale planet. A brief flare, there, then vanished. We saw a ship emerging from near the point of the flare. It grew steadily larger, catching flecks of sunlight like the carapace of a golden insect. Although there were no identifying markers, we knew, we sensed that it was Saga. We turned to one another, pointing. Isn't that... Was that an explosion? It must be... We watched the lone ship orbit the planet several times, gaining velocity. It was then we realized what was happening. Saga was preparing to leave. Her ship made one final circuit before it shot away in the direction of the outer solar system. We stared without comprehension. On Ceres, a cloud bloomed where the fire had been. Saga was gone. At first there was media attention. People wanted to interview us. Our pictures were broadcast. Saga's children said all the captions. Witnesses to her final farewell. That's what they called it, the media. Saga's final farewell. We thought it wrong. It implied that she had said goodbye before, and this was not the case, and she had not said goodbye now, not to us. Saga became a rebel. She had thwarted the CSSA, and some even believed that she had caused the explosion, which was the result of unstable gases released by the drilling. There was a warrant for her arrest. Interplanetary outrage was so great that the CSSA backtracked and declared themselves Saga's eternal ally and wished her safe travels wherever she was going. Later it was announced that the whole thing had been a setup. Saga had been dispatched on a secret mission known only to the Republic of China. Mars made a bold statement. The truth was that Saga had defected. She was working for another planet now. She was an agent, a double agent, a triple agent. The solar system held its breath anticipating a dramatic return. Months passed. There was no sign of Saga. Next, the experts appeared. Doctors and psychiatrists spoke to Saga's colleagues and analyzed her state of mind. Fellow astronauts agreed. Yes, she had been distracted. Yes, there had been lapses. She had fallen prey to star sickness, said the doctors. It happened sometimes to astronauts. She had been consumed by a kind of madness. We thought of Signy's penguins in the Antarctic. Had Saga gone the wrong way? 
Our opinions were sought and discarded. We had little to say. The frenzy passed more quickly than we expected. We are less interesting, not so photogenic as our mother. We lack the thing which makes her magnetic, the reckless spark in the storm sea eyes. We did not know enough to make a story. We returned to our old lives on earth and moon. Once a year we met. We talked about Saga, speculated as to her whereabouts. We did not believe she was dead. We were not sure if she had gone mad. Every few years there was a new rumor or sighting. Her ship had been spied on Daoni. The wreckage of her ship had been found in the asteroid belt and a human spacesuit drifting through the skies. But no, Saga herself had been witnessed in the embassy on Europa. We examined these theories, shared our musings late into the nights. The years passed. Now we are sept and octogenarians, unavoidably middle-aged. We have partnered, we have separated, some of us have children, some of us have money. We have weathered breakdowns and crises. We have dreamed. We are wiser, enough to know that what we know is nothing. We can seek, but we may not find. We decided to return to Ceres. The colony is fully established now, an independent civilization. Its population increases steadily. There is provision for tourists. This time we take a shuttle down to the planet's surface. Still a little wobbly from the after-effects of hibernation, we support one another, steadying elbows, watching our steps. We are amused by the low gravity and find ourselves acting like children. Even Pear wishes to see how high he can jump. After a night to acclimatize, we are taken on a tour of the capital, before we suit up and board the surface transport out to the mining station. The constructions loom as we approach. The machinery is colossal. Our guide... A tall man with thin, bird-like arms is deferential and eager to please. He knows our mother's name, of course. He shows us the plaque. The letters are glittering minerals which he tells us are from the mines. He says, proudly, that Ceres is the largest supplier of fuel in the solar system. The plaque says, This marks the last known flight of Saga Vermedal. We ask him for some time alone. He nods respectfully. We stand around the plaque. We suppose this is what we've come to see. We remember her ship, streaking away like a comet. This is the last place she was seen. We think that she was never really seen. There's a place on Earth, beneath the Siberian permafrost, where those who died in the gulags of the 20th century are said to be buried. Every winter, a new layer of ice crystals hardens over the tundra, fusing and compacting upon what lies below sealing the mass graves forever. It is said that their descendants still search for bones. There are women who go out day after day with ice picks and radars, their boots crunching on the new-fallen snow with that particular sound heard only on earth. They are looking for something. They are prepared to spend a lifetime looking. Don't forget, copyright is EJ Swift's. EJ, thank you so much for that. And Tren, like you say, fantastic. Just brilliant. And good luck as well. Yes, the 14th of April, closing date for those. Next up is Boat in Shadows, crossing by Tory Truslow. 
And again, just got to take, like you say, Adam, and sorting it all out. We've got to take a hats off to Adam for letting us get this story sorted. He worked it all out with Beneath Ceaseless Skies. The narration came and it appears with you know kind permission of Beneath Ceaseless Skies podcast. So I would please go over there and show your support for them. They've been there as well, just kind of putting out some cracking stories, man. That's what you know. we're all in this for, just to find those gems. And they certainly do it, you know what I mean? Just fantastic. So a big thank you to Seatless Skies for letting World kind of do this. And I'm just going to kind of run their story, you know what I mean? It's kind of cheating there a little bit. We're going to run how they presented it on their show. And it just covers all the copyright issues and everything like that. And this, the story is narrated by not one, but four narrators. Raja Khanna's short fiction has appeared in Shima, Abbas Apex, and The Way of the Wizard, amongst other stories. And his podcast narrations can be heard on Podcastle Lightspeed and Beneath the Skies. Folly Blaine lives in the Pacific Northwest. She has narrated fiction for Beneath the Ceaseless Skies, Willie Writers and Everyday Fiction, as well as through Amazon Platform Audio Creation Exchange. Michael Dale DeLuca's short fiction appeared in Apex, Clockwork Phoenix, Jabberwocky and Fantastica, amongst others. His podcast narrations at Beneath Ceaseless Skies and Small Beer Press. Tina Connolly's stories have appeared in Strange Horizons, Fantastic Magazine and Beneath the Skies. Her debut fantasy novel Iron Skin was the finalist for the Nebula Award and the sequel Copperhead was released by Tor Books in the fall of 2013. Her flash podcast adventure Toasted Cake is a two-time Parsec finalist for the Best Magazine Podcast. Boat in Shadows Crossing by Tori Truslow from issue number 113 of Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Read by, in order of appearance, Rajan Khanna, Folly Blaine, Michael J. DeLuca, and Tina Connolly. Tori Truslow was born in Hong Kong, grew up in Bangkok, and now lives and writes in England in a house on a hill overlooking the Thames estuary. Her fiction has appeared in New Fairy Tales, Praxis, and Clockwork Phoenix 3. Find her online at torytruslow.com. The text of this story is copyright 2013 by Tori Truslow. The audio recording is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 U.S. License. You may copy or share the MP3 so long as you retain the attribution to the author, but you may not sell it and you may not alter it or transcribe it. Boat in Shadows Crossing by Tori Truslow Come, let me whisper you a tale of the city where I was born, the town where salt plums grow. A summer tale, dark and succulent, with a bite of chill, the kind we love to tell on warm thick nights. Picture that place, between the soul-swallowing land and the heart-stealing sea, where once a merchant prince carved himself fine pleasure gardens out of the swamp. Picture dusk shivering the water, hear the night bells blooming. Picture a broad waterway sinking into moth-thick twilight. On the bank red grasses murmur, and the sky is ruffled in patterns like lace or lizard skin. Hear the city shuffling its canal streets, shifting its bridges. Just days until summer's heart the carnival of crossing. 
Time, soon, to shed old lives for new. Clots of wilted blossoms hang over house barges, dripping down, making way for festival fruit. Nestled there, under the tree's shadows, is a carved red barge with fat yellow lanterns. Inside, a party of youths, all intent on astonishing each other with weird, wild happenings. One, in pretty robes and rueful laughter, told the rest how a sun-tree ghost followed him through the gardens all day, lithe and coldly shining, asking if he'd come live with her. I told her I already have a wife, he said, and besides, I prefer my lover's warm. The servant who sat with them laughed at that. A new boy, handsome and dark, good enough fun to invite to the gathering. What a narrow view of love you've got, Kale, he said. Why, only yesterday I saw the happy fruits of a love between living and dead. The first man's brother shook his head. Don't encourage him, Boo. Ah, Jaron, let the lad have his turn, said Kale, and let him fill our cups as he does. Boo poured their cups full to the brim and served himself, too, as none had forbidden him. Then, long fingers fidgeting with air, as if pulling words from the wine-scented lamplight, he spoke. I always knew I'd get into the city, knew I'd not spend my life making fish traps in a swamp, though it was fixing a trap that got me here. It's old living in the mangroves, quiet living when the men lay down their whiskey songs. I'd sit up by night between our old walls, looking out to the shine of the city, listening for its bells, its beat. I thought of slipping off more than once, I can tell you, creeping upstream and finding all the dangers, all the temptations the drunks dribble about. But my thoughts were always interrupted by the house, the walls. Pa said those planks weren't special, just bits of old market boats. But late at night, they smelled of salt, muttered in tied voices like souls chewed up by the sea. Their sighing kept me fixed, and their rhythm steered my weaving. One midnight I was mending a split trap and thinking, I wish I had a way to make them better than the rest, get my paw more fish. Mutter stutter went the walls, and I stuck my fingers through the thing's wicker mouth, grabbed hold of the death inside it, snagged like threads on the splinters, and wove it back into the sides. You follow me? Want, chase, take, I told it. Swallow us a great fat catch. I made it fins and tail of palm, stones for eyes to see, and Pa took it next day and hung it in the water. Now we'll see, I thought. But when Pa went to fetch it that evening, it wasn't full of a great fat catch. Can you guess what was inside? I must have been dreaming of city girls when I fixed it up, because, well, picture it. The trap tied to one house pole by a long cord and I'd patched it up with the hunger of dead things. Would you have stayed in one place? Ha! Maybe it swam as far as it could, death woven through it like veins, gaping its mouth in hope of swallowing some life. Maybe a plump fish came by, shining and quick. Maybe they liked the look of each other. Maybe they danced, spun and tumbled in the current, and turned the water milky. So when Pa pulled it up, he saw its middle swollen full, but no fish inside, just a clutch of wicker beads rolling about, a belly full of eggs. Pa didn't know what to make of that, so he left them in a bucket 
and went to pull up the rest of the traps. Well, Ma found the bucket, only by then they'd hatched. Little baskets shoal with kicking tails and sucking mouths. That's what sent my folks off boasting about my talent, and that's what got me here. So I should thank that fish trap, really, though I won't say I'm not jealous it got all the fun that night. So the servant finishes his tale. He tells it light, not as if it means anything much. But I'll tell you a little more. Listen. Down in the mangroves, just a few days before this storytelling night, a certain fisher pulled up wicker eggs that turned into wicker fish. He showed his wife the trap that bore them, shiny stones tied onto it like eyes. She shook her head and turned to their daughter. It's because you made it too lifelike, she scolded, and now something's possessed it. Oh no, the daughter said, I made it more death-like, so it'd suck fish to the same fate. And her parents thought, and conferred, and spoke to their cousins and their neighbors who all agreed. A girl with such a talent could marry well. One said he'd heard of a wealthy ice merchant from across the seas with an unmarried son who needed someone with haunt tricks to help their business. He had bought a ghostwood barge to use as a roving shop, but couldn't get it to go. Now, Boo's parents cared for their daughter, but not for ghosty fish traps. And to be joined to a merchant family was a fine thought, so they asked her, as they sat down to supper, what she thought. But Ma, Pa, who'll tend the traps? Under her calm face, dismay tumbled with delight. The city, the city. But as a merchant's wife? I can do that, her mother said. Just think, no more blistering your fingers with work, but sitting in a high chair and commanding a house. And there'd be money to send home. So send me as a servant, Boo said, ladling soup into their bowls. I'll earn you some coin, and I'd rather work with my hands than worry about accounts. I've heard nothing good about rich boys and servant girls, said her father. Boo's smile was not a delicate thing, but a big, rash grin when she said, Why should I be a girl? And her parents were not hard people. Ah, is that how it is, said Boo's mother, who had seen her nodding at shrines to the double god Cam. It's a week till crossing, isn't it? Go as our son, then, said her father. If you find yourself happy, well enough. If you change your mind, come home for the carnival, and we'll send you back as our daughter. Have I confused you? Oh, to be telling this tale in my own tongue. They say a bad workman blames her tools, and maybe so, but your language throws up strange borders. Understand. To her parents, Boo was a daughter, but to herself... Neither he nor she is exactly right, and nor is any third word. But these are the words you understand, so I'll do what I can with them. Boo packed up her things, a pillow, spare shirt and trousers, her knife. She took the baby basket fish, all tied on a string. The egg-bearing trap she set quietly into the canal. Its spawn must have had a father. Perhaps they'd wish to be reunited. In the dark water, it beat its tail, went swift through the sluggish current. Then she sat and fixed traps. The weaving hurt her fingers. The walls were silent, the night slow. Morning came from the city, beckoning, and she was ready. She kissed her parents, set out with their neighbor. Out, over the ever-widening web of canals, past the spiry silver and gold temples of the stars and moon, out to the north of the city, where ancient pleasure gardens draped themselves over the banks. 
where the bronze trees rang and the flame trees reached up to the sky, where rich squares of land were joined by sly, pivoting bridges, where the tall houses were dark, shining wood with trailing silk curtains, where barges carried not goods, but learning, where the women wore organza gowns and grew their hair long, and only men kept theirs short, a glistering, jeweled web of a new world. Its waters and trees, bridges and boards, all swelling with more ghosts than Boo could fathom. But let's return to that night of skittish lamp-lit tales, and see Boo savor the merchant son's laughter, play for their admiration. How we laugh at boys like you in the mangroves, he said. Pale and flimsy with riches, they say, but not me. I think you're very fine. Your father, too, Kale, a wise man. I knew from the moment I met him. He went on. Wise to buy a boat built from old wicked wood, when all the modern merchants go scrabbling after craft made with demons' trickery, wound up ghosts and engines they were never meant to haunt. What speed is worth owing a debt to them? No, give me a natural haunting any day. But a ghosty boat with pretty carved fins won't go if it doesn't want to. And there's my entrance, bundled off by my proud parents to earn some gold. Bad luck. The village must have thought me, weaving death in the night while they worked and slept. Bad luck and good riddance, said their eyes when I went. But I think ghosts are like dice. You can be lucky or unlucky with them. And I got lucky. So I told this ice seller, your good father, I mean, I can do anything you like with haunt stuff, no problem. Boastful? If you like. But I believed it that morning, when the world and I stared at each other like new things. Good, said he, and showed me his boat. It was splendid, I said. Didn't ask where he'd got it from, or whether its eyeless grinning face unnerved him. You'll be well treated, boy, if you get this boat swimming by tomorrow. Otherwise it's back to whatever you were before. Well, I bided my time till dark, waited up for that deep kind of night that gets ghosts restless. We're heading toward that time now, and I'm sure the boat can hear us. So shush me if I crow too loud for beating it. It might swallow us all. Think it wouldn't? Listen to the games it played last night. Under the brooding black, I put my hands to its deck, which looks so smooth in day. It stuck me full of splinters. Too late the thought squirmed in my brain. This is nothing like the fish's ragged little deaths. Maybe my luck's run out. The canal ran colder, the dark got me sharper, and I felt the thing twitch. Not the surface, something under, full of sighs and pain and yells turned to naughty wood. Who'd cross that? Only a night-mad fool clinging to the city he's only just won. Time to show what I'm made of, I thought, and spoke with a man's swagger. I'm your commander now. You'll obey me. The planks went warm and wet with a hollow gurgling noise that rose into a whisper. I hope you never get to hear that sound. It turned in my guts like a key, said I'd woken it. Good, said I. You've work to do. Then I saw that the sound came from mouths and mouths and mouths that had opened like wounds in the screens and railings, all toothed with thorns, and all with a voice like a twisted crowd jammed in a bottle with just one throat between them. I'll swallow you up, it said, and suck the spirit from your bloody bones. Ha, said I, I'll jump overboard first and I swim fast. 
and with a ring of mouths that drew close to me along the floor, it said, I'll eat you right where you cower. And trailing mouths across the ceiling, it said, I'll catch you if you swim, too. Oh, so you can catch anything, I scoffed, and anything. It grated with all its splintery mouths. Oh, I had it then. Well, I say I can release a fish you can't catch. How it laughed. Didn't it wake you in your big houseboat? It laughed like it knew I'd end up squeezed among the untold deaths in its gut, and asked if I was so ready to bet my life on that. I am, and a bet it is, said I. And so we made a deal. If it could catch my fish, it could eat me and whatever else it liked. If not, it would do as I bade. And it seemed to still be laughing, but the sky was lightning, though night's hours hardly felt spent, and I saw that what I had taken for mouths were in fact just cracks in the red paint. The merchant came. Time to test my luck. I tossed one little basket fish over the side. In the water it turned lively, and feeling the furious thing behind it shot away. The boat went after it with such a jerk that it broke its mooring, but it stopped at the busy street corner, not knowing which way the canny thing had gone. Now, boat, I whispered into its wood, proud as anything. Remember our bargain. Chase again if you catch its taste, or else go where I steer. The merchant clapped his hands. I took my place by the monster's tail, and away we went. You were so sure your creature would be fast enough, said Jaron. Child of fish and ghost, said Boo, what could be quicker? He told them how easily the boat responded to him, tail rudder beating in the water. How the people who lived on that canal came to the windows of their stilt-born houses and waved, shouting, He's done it at last! He told how they wove this way and that, calling out their wares. Frozen treats, chilled teas from across the seas. The dawn blazed, the water was calm, and the things the boat had said were easy to forget under the dancing shadows of the flame trees. Ah, enough, said Jaron though the other boys looked glad of a chance to think of daylight. We don't want to hear about father's work. Let me have my turn now. You'd do well to listen, scolded Kale. Jaron frowned and poured another cup of their father's wine down his throat. I've more mysteries, promised Boo, who had tasted what it is to have an audience. Listen, this is the best bit. Round another corner, we came to a wide water square, where market boats mingled and the shoppers went needling between them in their canoes. They all turned to stare at us, knocking their boats' noses into each other as we moored ourselves at the square's edge. We did good trade, selling sweets and icy syrup to curious customers, serving tea right at this table. If they saw the boat's great big grin just under the water, they stayed quiet. Just as we got set to go, I spied something in the water— and the boat sensed it too, flick of a palm-leaf tail. And we were off, so fast that the pots of tea leapt from the table and were on me like freezing rain, and I was on the floor. The merchant didn't topple like me, but he yelled louder, shouting at me to stop it. But what could I do? I tried, pounding on the floor like a fool and saying, No, no, not now! But I knew we'd go till the boat lost the fish, or caught it. Well, it lost the trail in the end, and we found ourselves in a dark street with tall teak houses all leaning together over the water, rich-looking, 
but with something secret and starved and half-mad about them. Their jutting fronts stood on skinny stilts with slimy ribbons wound around, little ghost shrines hanging like birdcages on chains from underbox windows. We glided under a red glass bridge that hummed when shadowy folk walked on it, and beyond it the water was even darker and quieter, like dusk. It spooked us both. I think even the boat wanted to be out of there. But the way was too narrow to turn, so on we went to the end, and were stopped by a song. It fell from a high window in a high house, with walls carved to look like rotted leaves, so thin I could see light shining through them. And what a window! It had some haunt charm on it, a frame carved with birds that beat their wings and dipped their wooden beaks in wooden flowers. And what a song! Its telling was nothing so strange, a maiden who comes to salt plums chasing her sweetheart and gets snared by a demon. But the singing of it. That song, cried Jaren, wild-eyed. Boo reached for the slack thread of the story, but Jaren blocked him again. Do you remember it? A word about the ice merchant's sons. You know how brothers are in stories. Everyone knew that Kale born when his father had first arrived in the city and could afford to eat only plain rice, raised in uncertain years, was clever and dutiful. Everyone knew Jaren, born in his father's fine houseboat, raised without hunger or care, was lazy and stuffed with dreams. He loved indulgence, in smoking or gambling or falling in frequent hopeless love. Even more, he loved words, long strings and bolts of them, more wonderful to him than things. There were words enough to be found in the city, perhaps too many, budding in its orchards and dancing on its spires. He could hardly look at the sun sequining the canal without verses threatening to burst him open. But how dappled the city's song, how knotted its meter. He wrote calm water, but knew the water might hide market trash and murders and magic. He wrote angel-faced beauties, but knew lovely faces might mask all manner of bodies. He wrote in a bold black hand, but knew city ink had stories of its own. Still he sat, with heat-fogged head, fighting the ghosts that flowed in his pen late into the night. And once, this led to a strange adventure. Listen to him tell it to the boys on the boat now. It was a year ago. On one of those nights when everything blew. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When I heard that song myself, I was sitting at a window in the houseboat trying to pen something calm, something still. But outside I could see the fruit on the trees swelling enormous in time with the tide. Too hot to write or to think. I went to walk in the garden, under the glower of houses with their windows lit late. The air flat, pressed down by the sweltering belly of a long summer. I plucked a peach and a bit. It burned my tongue with salt. A pair of lovers lay like stifled dead things in the old stone pavilion, and a barge, a barge stole past on the water, with shutters thrown wide against the heat, glittering voices and light out onto the deep, rippling street. It was a learning boat, and inside a scholar was reciting ancient verses in perfect shape, sweet and spare. I'll follow that boat, I thought, out of this cut-up, windowy night, and into whatever calm place of reflection it's bound for. So into its wake I slipped, in the lover's cast-off coracle. The boat drew me up and down the waters, its wake so bright. But, oh, night's streets, how they drift you astray. I felt a thin breeze and lifted my face hungrily into it, and so I never noticed the city stirring until the way had diverged and a dark current was drawing me down a dark canal. There spindly houses pressed together, as if sharing a delicate secret, and in the gloom of that place I was caught in a net of black honey that oozed from a window above, and that honey was song. I saw a house above me with walls carved like worm-eaten flowers, and the window, it was no trick of the shadows, unpainted grain shifting like light, and wooden hummingbirds shifting in their sleep. And then the singer showed her face, shining golden as the young moon, eyes black stars. Oh, and this is pathetic praise. Words cannot touch her, but how I burned. I've long forgotten the purity of the poem that led me there, only the mess of the song that fell on me from her window. You know what I speak of, Boo, if your story's true. That song, oh, sing it. So Boo sang. Who is there, boat in the shadows, be merchant, be pilgrim or thief? Only your lover that followed the lure, of jasmine in your night-long hair. Come where it's secret over the river. My face a mask, my teeth are sharp. And Jaron replied, Who is there, boat in the shadows? Be soldier, be fisher or priest? Only your lover, unwinding the lure Of jasmine in my night-long hair. Come where it's secret, over the river. My face a mask. My teeth are sharp. And her face, Boo, did you see her face? cried Jaron. Was it not perfect? Like the moon rose in her room instead of the sky, said Boo. Like she was grown as a pearl in a shell. How bright, how cold. Jaron grasped the servant's face and kissed him in joy. Boo, you saved me. I tried to call up that night, but no words would come. I took myself home to write them, but nothing was good enough. I went back to find her, but you know how this city is. 
how it moves according to its own sour whims. I searched and searched, and it was no good. Either she was a dream sent to madden me, or she's poetry itself, and the jealous streets twist to keep us apart. But she's no dream. You saw her, and surely our clever boat can find her again. Kale laughed. And then what, Jaren? Bring her home and settle down like an honest man? I know you. You're too idle, too selfish to marry. I would marry her, said Jaren. Boo, you'll help me, won't you? Jaren had grown fond of Boo from the first moment they'd spoken. Here was a boy with quick wit and a hunger for the world. Despite their different circumstances, conversation came easily to them. Now here he was offering Boo a part in a wonderful romance, and yet Boo was silent. Besides, continued Kale, you're incapable of uttering a word to her. You said so yourself. That was a year ago. I have some words now. I've dreamed of her every night since last summer. Keep dreaming, said Kale, and so on. Kindled by Boo's story, Jaren grew more fire-hearted the more his brother taunted. And Boo? Boo felt the helm of the story snatched away. Was this adventure over so soon? Were girls at windows better suited to tangle the city sons than swamp daughters? She had not told them the final scene of her story. On that dark street, the ice merchant had clapped Boo on the shoulder, told her to put on a bold voice and cry out their wares while he put his scattered goods back in order. So Boo did, and the singer stopped her song, said she would try a bowl of ice-syrupy fruits. Her voice was as impossible as her face, gold ringing on glass. She lowered down a basket with a shining ruby inside. Is it enough? she asked. Oh, more than enough, said Boo, and sent up the bowl, cold sugared fruit sliced in thin ribbons. The woman's black eyes glittered bright at the taste, and she threw another ruby down. Keep that, she said, and bring me a bigger bowl next time. And heat rose in Boo's chest like a summer tide. But she said nothing of this to Jaren, who, furious at his brother, declared he would win the girl before the week was out. That's an empty claim, said Kale. Make it a bet if you mean it. I say you won't marry, and certainly not by carnival night. And I say I will, and a purse of gold says so too. A purse of father's gold? That's no bet. How about your inheritance? Are you mad? No, child, you are, for thinking anyone would marry such a lazy fool. Well, drink and brother baiting make a heady cocktail. Jaron agreed to it quickly. His luck, he knew, had turned with Boo's coming. You'd better find out her name then, said Kale, and laughed and laughed. A city takes longer to dress for a festival than you or I, and no city loves to decorate itself more than the town where salt plums grow. There are days, as the season thickens, when the water traffic and the shining air sound like a pulse, thrumming eager for the nights when the streets will deck themselves with painted faces, the buildings with bright lights. The trees bend over the water and try out new colors and scents, the island of Cam's temple sends out paths and channels like arms multiplying, beckoning people into itself to come hear the tales of the double god, to mark the nights until the crossing. 
The next day was one such, and Jaron lay on the canal bank by his father's houseboat, with his head as night-bruised as his innards. The sky was all buzz and blossom, snarling through his thoughts. When the afternoon congealed to a sticky yellow, the shop returned from its rounds, drifting through the dusk like an old red ghost. He called out, and after securing the boat in place, Boo came to lie on the bank beside him. "'Nothing's clear this time of year,' Jaron moaned. "'It's this heat that's to blame for my rashness last night.' "'Change your mind, then,' said Boo, who had brought Jaron's pipe, filled it, and taken a long taste before handing it over. "'No!' he cried. "'I can't lose her again. "'Say you'll help me, Boo. "'You must know more of girls than I do. "'How would you win her? "'Tell a dazzling story, write a pretty verse, make her laugh. "'And if I were you, make some modest remark about my father's wealth. Ah, "'I wish I had your manner.' "'As he said this, a wonderful idea struck him. "'You'll talk to her for me.' Oh ho, you'll keep your fortune by getting another to do your courting for you? You're a better businessman than your brother guesses. Jaron cuffed Boo lazily, and Boo took the pipe back. So what's my bribe? Jaron pretended not to hear the last. I'll write the words. You'll take them to her. A perfect romance. Words over distances. Speaking without speaking. Are you going to talk to her when you're married? Or will I have to stick around to help you then, too? You'll do it, said Jaron, bored of joking, or I'll have you sent back to your swamp, where you can practice your wit on the crabs. So Boo, with cautious hand, tried to steer the tail again, through the gloaming, through the vapor-clogged air, trusting the boat to taste its way back. Night stretched and breathed, spilling its people onto the bobbing sidewalks, shining its lanterns, slipping into the blood. The boat glided on streets Boo had never seen, but here a doorway, there a bridge, was familiar. And here was the corner to the old, thin street. But when the boat tried to enter, its bow crunched against the bank of marshy ground jutting with mangrove roots. That's new, Boo said. But you can get past it, can't you? The boat made no response, only sat waiting as the tide crept up. Sampans wandered by, their occupants unconcerned by the changed land. When the water was lapping over the banks, the boat pulled itself up by its fins and crawled, red paint flaking on the hard roots. The scraping of its hull sounded like bitter threats against Boo, but it still went, lashing its tail and chomping at the growth. Then they slid into the deep street beyond, where a warm breeze knocked the houses together so they chuckled low. Song trailed on the water, reeling the boat to the wide open window where Boo tilted up her face, mouth open as if to catch the sound on her tongue. The song broke. Who's there? A poor beggar. I've no coin. Then spare me your name, said Boo. My master would worship you if he only knew what to call you. A face appeared in the window, and all else fell into deeper shadow. You! It's too late to be selling sweets, isn't it? That's not what I'm here for. But still to do business. This master of yours, does he let you sleep? Never mind that. He wants you to know, O oh Melodious Moon, that he's spent a year of size on you. Won't you repay him? A light laugh, like breeze, shaking petal flakes from the house's wooden skin. Sighs are a strange currency, she said. What can I do with them? 
Oh, said Boo, he has a lifetime more to offer. He's a poet, sweet lady, and a single one of his size beats ten of any other man's. And do with them? Why, nothing at all. But won't it be nice to know how worthy they are? This made the girl laugh again, but this laugh was better, sudden and belly-deep, an escaping thing quickly bound up again. Leaves of housewall showered and sank. I'll give you my name for that, she said, lips of dusk-red rose, tiny teeth of pearl. Though whether it's really for your master is anyone's guess. I'm Wirissa. I'm Boo. And how did you come to steer a monster, Boo? I know a few tricks with haunt stuff. What was it that stirred on that shining face? Boo thought she could see the hollows under Wirissa's cheekbones, as if her golden skin was just a thin, stretched film. Such lovely skin. And sharp and secret things lie under lovely pools. Boo's bloodbeat said, Away, away, get away. What was this place? Your street tried to stop me coming, she said to Wirissa. It's not like any street I've seen before. What are other streets like, then? Haven't you seen them? The other laugh, the unpretty one, came again, but this time sour and thin. My room has no door, she said. There's a song about it. And she told Boo all she had to call a tale. Door unborn waits in the walls, blooms when love calls. Why do they sing, these shining shadows? Why make the shapes they do? Ladies with bird faces and velvety lizards, crawling toads with heads upon heads upon heads, instruments strung with star-white water, strummed by bonefish with their spines, my only companions. They sing all night, lullabies left by my mother and father. I heard the cities big as a world, and full of things to chew you from the spirit out. The songs won't tell me what gnawed up my family, if I had a family. Sad girls always do in songs, but not the things that tempt and snare poor wonders by. Which do I seem to you? Oh, but these walls sometimes sing of a man and woman who are slowly swallowed by something, who love their girl so much that they wouldn't leave her in human hands. Who can you trust? I think it's me they mean, so a girl I must be. Maybe I've some desire to snare, certainly to sing, never to gnaw on souls. But if the songs are true, who can live in the city without a spare face or two? So they left me with shadows, and such a clever house to dwell, to keep me tight and safe and well. Wood from the boughs of a hundred trees, walls with a hundred haunt gifts. I used to think they'd come back, like one of the songs says. Mother's gone to the forest, hush, oh sleep, or the crow will eat your eyes, the snake your insides. Hush, O oh sleep. She will bring back lychees from the demon's tree to keep your cursed days sweet. Hush, O oh sleep. She never came. The lychees did another plump fruit to eat every dawn on my table as if they grow in the night. Jewels come like damp with the rains and they rot if I don't scoop them up. My ceiling puts out new lamps in summer and the window lets me show my lovely face. I have all I need in my little room, till the day love comes boating by and it buds me a door. Oh, it must be nearly now. She whispered so, Boo had to half-climb the ragged walls to hear, tiptoe on the boat's railings. 
Flakes fell from the house like ash. Gold light shone through the cracks. There was only the sound of houses clucking softly together under the heavy black breeze as Warissa leaned out. The shadows in the carven window frame came with her, as if unwilling to let her face go, catching at her tumbling sky-black hair, blotching her taut cheeks. Her lips tasted just like her songs, sweet and dark, cinnamon and plum. Do you know, you're the only one who's ever come back, she whispered against Boo's face. The door's a summer fruit, I'm sure. The shade shifted on her cheek, something with splaying toes and a twitch of a tail. Boo tumbled to the boat deck, stammered something about needing to get back. Dear master, Marissa said, looking down, window framed once more, flawless and cold. A fine mask to wear. I'm not he, Boo said, and slapped the boat and fled. Shadows thicker than the night stayed sticky on her skin. Next day, one more day until crossing, Jaren found Boo sleeping on the deck. Up, Boo! You should be cleaning the boat by now, but I won't tell. Did you see her? What did she say? Boo stared at him, with the look of one who has woken from a deep, devouring dream and gulped down too much dawnlight. She didn't say yes. She didn't say no. Spoken riddles. Her room's doorless. Her people chewed up by the town long ago. This was wonderful news to Jaren. No door? Then she's waiting for a brave lover to cut the way. Oh, perfection will go at once and free her. Beauty so perfect is a sure sign of ghosts, said Boo. That house is rotten with death. What if she's dead too? I won't go back there. Now to Jaren, the day seemed to be turning sweet as a story. But ah, this is not his story. His father appeared then, commanding Boo to ready the shop, Jaren to call at the docks. And so both lads spent the bright hours working, both hearts whirling. How tired their hands and heads were when night came and they met again. Tomorrow at first light, promised Jaren, and crawled to his rest. Boo lay down on the shop floor, adrift on instant sleep despite the boat's dark prickling. It spiked into Boo's dreaming, Boo who walked as a prince through trees of snapping shadow, with the boat's knotted ghosts for companions, all seeking release. They tugged him forwards, and Boo woke to feel the night sliding over his cheek. Had he forgotten to secure the boat, or had it slipped away of its own accord? It went slow, predator quiet. Boo went to look over the bow. Late wanderers went by in needleboats or drifted over bridges. Lights floated in the water, living pearls imported from the night isles, and centipedes from the same land twinkled over the knotty banks. The double-god Cam's faithful were out, lighting shrines by the high water, or creeping with clay-filled hands to change the sex of any deity figure they found. The streets and houses murmured all around, hazed by white smoldering trees, glowing branch tips that trailed throat-burning fragrant smoke. They dropped ash on the boat as it swam below. Between the trees were shining plants, branches laden low, offering bottle-glossy fruit to pluck. The humming air shaped itself into words. Away, away, come away. And Boo was awake and hungry. He pulled down fruits and opened them, and found oily pastes instead of pulp. Gold, white, green, red. 
He gazed into the black water and painted himself, eyes and cheeks of a proud queen, jaunty mustache of a questing prince. The boat went on under the ashy air to a window adorned with sleeping birds. The house flickered, paper-thin against the lamplight beating within, shadows licking up the walls like a flowing tide. No face shone from the window. No song fell. Marissa? You, again. She came to the window, golden face almost translucent. And with a new mask. What new games have you come here to play? It's nearly crossing day. My master's coming in the morning to cut a doorway and rescue you. You want to come with me? Come see the city putting on its lights? Or wait around for him? If he's not your invention, perhaps he's my true love, she sighed, and the walls wear themselves thin to welcome him. You truly think? She seemed almost transparent now, eyes huge in their sockets. Boo almost expected to see veins and the creases in her skull. I think the door could be another monster's maw, to gulp me down to my fate. I think I'd be a fool to wait dreaming for that. But then is my choice to be rescued by you instead? And who are you with your smiling boat? I'm not asking you to come away forever, said Boo, just for the festival. But it's true enough. You've no call to trust me. Then he told her all, his girlhood, her boyhood, the boat's bargain, Jaren's bet. Last night, I half convinced myself that you're a dead thing, hungry for my soul. But that's not it. Seems we're both in a net. Seems you got into yours yourself. But we can go, paint ourselves new. Look, the city's growing festival fruits. He held them up, ripe, split, oozing gold and silver paste. As if in answer, the decayed walls put out new shoots, thick and thorny. And my house is growing brambles to keep me in. If I climb out, they'll tear my face, and who'll want me then? He swore he would, if she wanted him. And she pulled herself up to crouch on the windowsill and took a wide look at the night and jumped through the thickening stems. Boo fell as he tried to catch her, fell still grinning to the deck. Oh, but don't be so quick to grin with him. Marissa looked at him, and her face was blotted with a mark like a lizard, petal scales and claws of thorn curling from jaw to forehead along the left curve of her skull. How do you like my real face? she said and finished her earlier song. Mother's gone to the forest, hush, O oh sleep, where the crow will eat your eyes, the snake your insides, hush, O oh sleep, and she will bring you branches from a ghost-fed tree to frame your cursed face sweet, hush, O oh sleep. Boughs from a hundred trees to make my room, a hundred haunt gifts, and the best of all to make the window. A ghost so fixed on beauty that it cast faces on anyone who'd stand in its shade, lovelier than any living thing. That ghost's pale shadow you loved, not me. But your eyes, said Boo, looking at her, at the life that bloomed in place of those polished black stars. They're just like eyes. She laughed. That's the most romantic thing I've ever heard said. And my bad luck, Mark. Aren't you scared? Haven't I told you, Boo said? I'm lucky enough for two. Very well, then. Be quick to grin with him, as you do for heroes full of luck and pluck. We could leave them there. Only the moon was high and the night was big and the drums were calling over the waters. 
and so let's follow them. To the festival? To the festival. She jutted her face forward, and Boo painted her like a boy hero from a masked play, then pulled her up to the narrow sidewalk. Go on, he whispered to the boat. Go celebrate however boats do. Then they sidled around the corner to the next canal, where they saw the tail of a great crowd, boats and bank walkers, winding into the thick of the city. They followed the fattening crowd to a lantern-starred aisle strewn with sand and straw, where Cam's tall, shell-studded temple stood. The air was full of swelter and balm, the compound crammed with entertainers and market stalls. "'What's this?' said Warissa, as Boo bought the hottest, sweetest, stickiest items from every stand to pile into her hands. "'This?' Boo looked to the great tent of white paper that stood like a giant's lantern at the heart of the temple courtyard. "'It must be a shadow show. Let's see it.' "'Not more shadows,' said Marissa, but Boo tugged at her hand. "'These aren't your haunt shadows, just puppets in light.' "'Ah!' cried Warissa as they ducked inside. "'So bright!' She shied her eyes from the tent's core. Not a wooden pole, but a column of lamps like a dazzling fish spine, going up, up, up to the slatted ceiling. All was still, the paper-wrapped space holding its breath. Everyone in Salt Plums knows the story played in that place, but I'll tell it to you, and forgive my words, poor shadows of shadows, for not getting close to the wonder of it. First comes the colorful shade parade of acrobatic tigers, serpents, bulls, peacocks, chased by the long-tongued storyteller who calls to them to stop and see the tale, the wandering lovers, or how Cam married their self. But where's the puppeteer? said Warissa. Where indeed? There was only streaming light, and no place for a puppet man to hide, though all could hear his chanting. Musicians dangled their legs over the slats above, but the shadows could not be flung from up there. The dancing silhouettes seemed part of the tent wall itself. Were even temples now turning to haunt tricks to all the crowds? No, Boo thought. It must be Cam's magic, holy and joyful. Now the story unfolds. Here is Cam, the tiny god, performing small kindnesses where it can. Here, a princess, who stepped out to see a little only a little, of the world, but fell so in love with walking that she could not stop. Here, a prince who fled his father, a wicked sorcerer king. See them journeying from opposite directions. See them reach the town where salt plums grow, where instead of ever onwards, the wanderer is drawn ever inwards. Shadow houses and filmy trees flicker and twist, light rippling like water between them. See Cam the tiny god meet with a hundred little mishaps. It tries to help a fisherman but tumbles into the water. See the shadowfish leap. Cam is pulled out by a fisher girl, our princess in disguise, of course. The god promises her a favor. Oh, she gestures. See her thoughts. A man kept as a demon slave. Isn't he that same exiled prince? The fisher girl would rescue him if she could leave her duties for just a day. So Cam splits itself in two. One half dons the princess's face and takes her place. The other puts on the prince's shape and stays with the demon while the lovers make their escape. Now, with them safely away, prince-shaped Cam challenges the demon. Who can produce the most astonishing thing from this locked cupboard? 
The demon brings forth a man who breathes out full-grown lions, lions with vines for manes, vines whose fruits burst into stars that float up to the sky. The god nods and takes its turn, opens the cupboard to reveal itself, their self, split twice more into the shape of the new married couple. The demon's mouth stretches so wide in surprise that it snaps back, envelops his body, and he's gone. Now see Cam, the great god, stooped double to fit on the walls, dancing the year round. For a season, she is the princess with her fish basket. For another, he is the runaway prince. And for the final season, the pair united in one form, the god male and female. And now it's the heart of summer, the day when Cam makes that crossing again, and all the revelers cross in turn. Perhaps just for the day, Morning after, many will cross back to being sons or daughters, wives or husbands, but others will stay, and there are those who don't call themselves men or women in any month, who dance along today's canal banks with everyone else, dance in perfection. For summer has come, and summer mingles all things. See the lovers, new light on their gilded faces. See the wide, deep street, Turned by the sun to burning silver. Hear the drums, the bells reverberating over the water. But hear, too, the low melody hiding in the air, hiding with teeth and tails in it. My room, Larissa whispered. It's somewhere near. Forget it, said Boo. That ghost-eaten thing. It'll be dead by evening. And so they stepped over the threshold of this day that stretched long and lovely as a shining lake before them. But sharp and secret things lie under lovely pools. See the thin house peering from a thin alley, dripping the dust of its walls to the muddy ground. The procession wound all round the canals, faces flashing bright. Marissa and Boo followed on sidewalks and over bridges, and as the day ripened and burned off the shallow streets, along the cracked mud and slime, a summer novelty to walk on the canal beds rather than skim above, among the year's inventory of lost and sunken things. They saw drowned toys, trinkets, and animal's bones. They saw a stranded carnival boat of young boys with painted ladies' faces striking parody poses, all but one making themselves giddy, laughing at each other's antics. The last of their number simply peered at her new reflection in a puddle and smiled. Her friends didn't laugh at her. They came to the market square where the water was still deep and saw a floating stage where the mask features of the dancers flashed from prince to princess to both to entirely other with each flick of their fans. They watched, delighted, from a platform under a heaped block of shop houses swinging feet above the flowered-starred water. My lullabies never told me there were so many other ways to be, Marissa said. Most days there aren't. Cam's religion is young, but the way their story chanters have it, there were once more than a hundred genders. You can tell from old stories, they say, whispered histories and from the shape of our language, but the city merchant princes boil them down to two. All the rest get squeezed into this one festival, and we should squeeze them back out. Or that's what some of Cam's followers say. Wear ourselves however we like, whatever the season? Yes. Well, Get this face you've painted off me, then, and let me do my own. 
so Boo wiped Warris's cheeks clear. Under her fingers, the lizard mark was warm as any other skin, warm and still. They said nothing, only saw each other brimming with light and shade both. And Boo did not see the thing that thrashed across the square, a rough-hewn canoe with a crocodile's tail, and Jaren scowling atop it, face unpainted, eyes searching the crowds. But Jaren saw Boo and stopped sharply under the platform. "'What have you done with my boat?' he yelled up. "'Where's my bride?' Boo looked at Warissa, who turned her face away. Of course, Jaren could not recognize her without her window face. What to say? Before Boo could think of a story, Jaren yanked her by the ankle to the churning craft. Hitting the wood and twisting to look back, Boo saw that the old, rotted house had somehow crawled in among the jumbly tower of shops. There was a flash in its triumphant window, Warissa's foot, glassy and golden, vanishing inside. Had it swallowed her up, or had she fled there? Wait, Boo called. The canoe shot away, ghost fast. Now Wirissa saw Boo snatched away, but all she could hear was wood creaking like sharp musical strings behind her. Eat your insides, it rang. Had she ever thought she would escape that place? Oh, they had beaten it once. Oh, but it was so empty, so waiting. She turned to face it, and the lizard-marked side of her face twitched cold. Then she went, as she had known all along she would, climbing into the waiting shell of her room, where old blue shadows lay on the floor like drifted ashes. Canal light came through slack-mouthed gaps in the walls, dancing up over the beams. Pulse of silver. New season. New world. How strange and bright. How to snatch it back and catch Boo again, too. Hush, oh, stay inside. The pooled shadows breathed, the shadows that had loved her, or oh, the world will eat your heart. The shadows that had told her she could be a girl or a ghost, nothing more. Hide safe until it's time. Disguise, came the thought. My love is fond of faces. On her dressing table were pearl-tipped hairpins, bright brooches, tiny jeweled scissors. Marissa scooped them up went to her window, drove the scissors under a carved bird's back, and worked. How she worked. She used her long, hard nails and sang to drown out the whimper of the walls as she filled her fingers with splinters, as she bled. The wood under her hands pulsed and cried like a living thing, a murdered thing. She shook her head against her own tears for the place that had cradled her, for the window that had given her the golden skin of the moon. Outside, Below, the carnival twirled on into the afternoon, bright masks as far as the eye could see. None saw her. Wrench, bleed, carve. With a cry of savage joy, at last, she flung the bird into the air. And it flew. Lopsided and wooden, buoyed with purpose, it flew. Have you ever waited alone for a lover as the light goes out of the world? It can make you sick. And how much more so when your blood is still running and your home cooling about you like a corpse? Morissa saw the street drying up and slowly lengthening, all the trees along its banks putting out clouds of tiny flowers to hide the retreating city in white. She heard the laughter and life of the day recede into the distance, but she waited. And Boo came in the dark as the tide began to trickle back, swinging a bundle of dry white flowers wearing thin wedding garlands.
Why are you wearing those? cried Wirissa. Where's my bird? And this is what Boo told her. Your bird. Afraid I've lost your bird. But I'm getting this all backwards. I'll try to tell it right. Will you come down? Ah, don't look like that. I know it's late, but did you think I'd find you quick? I had to get away from Jaren first, and then everything was swallowed up in summer smoke and dust. You should have seen his face. His fury. He whisked me off on that cursed crocodile boat. I didn't ask where he'd got that from. Back to the gardens, raging at me all the way. Is this how you repay my friendship? I woke this morning and thought, Where's the boat gone? he said. I feared for you at first. Ha! What if the boat caught the fish trap, I thought. What if it's taken Boo off and eaten him? Then other thoughts crept up on me. Perhaps you'd given up your task, too scared to see it through. And you call yourself a haunt smith. Where would you go? I went to your village, all the way, to all that mud and gloom. I'm looking for a lad called Boo, I said. Trap maker, cocky, clever with death. Boo's a girl, an old grumbly man said, my neighbor's bad luck daughter. Someone scolded him then for speaking ill of one of their own and for naming someone sex on crossing day. Well, I came back in a bleak haze, but my luck turned on the market square. I've got you, and you can be my wife, for I've still a bet to win. I felt what he meant about a haze. The air was all heat and haunting and bells and dreams and dead houses and the taste of smoke and splitting fruit. I was off floating, far from myself. Had to get back, how to get back. I thought you'd abandon me, and I still couldn't think of anything else. Jaren started up talking again, but I stared without hearing until he dashed canal water in my face. That's better, he said, as my makeup dripped away. So angry he was, but something lost about him too. You're a fool, Jaren, I said. What kind of wife would I make for you? But I knew I was stuck. Then I saw we were going under low-leaning trees, and I managed to pull myself up on one. Then what? Walk all the way back? It was all I could do. Jaren got up on the bank and came cursing after. And though I tried to lose him in the bundles of people walking by the water, he was never far behind. But as I pushed through the crowd, something flew down to me, a wooden bird, one half of it all pretty and polished, the other cut rough. I knew just what it was. Hop on my head, I said, and it did, just as Jaren caught up. I sneaked a look at my reflection in the water and saw a face like a puppet's, my hair in ripples, and the bird floating there like some mad new comb for fine merchant women to envy. It made me shiver, my skin all glazed like that, and eyes turned to coins. And more of a lady than I'd ever looked in my life. But then, I hardly looked like me at all. Jaren stopped and cried, Oh, what goddess are you come to walk the festival among us? No, said I, and it was the bird's voice I spoke with. Had to fight in my throat to get my own voice through, and I spoke in my regular low tone. I'm no goddess. Oh, and he didn't know if I was man or woman then, but I could see how he wanted me. It was a fine idea of yours, but the bird's ghostly little heart wasn't so strong as when it was stuck in your window frame, and its power flickered over me. So Jaren chased and saw my true face, 
and said he'd leave me be if I could help him find this strange new beauty he had seen. And Jaren chased and saw my mask, and claimed such love I'd have blushed if my cheeks weren't false and frozen. I led him along until I couldn't keep it up, and fell over laughing. He tried to kiss me, and saw my face flickering, and oh, poor boy, he didn't know what to do. "'What are you?' he howled, and then shook his head and said, "'No matter. Just let me go and face my ruin.' "'Well, I'd been cruel enough, and to one I'd called a friend. "'So I told him the whole thing and made him a deal. "'After all, I figured his silly bet had given me a new shot at the world, "'even if he never meant it to. "'So I went with him to his brother, yes, wore the wedding garlands, even sang the promise songs in my ghost face. How the little bird struggled to keep me frozen for long enough. But it did. And I made certain Jaren knew it was the ghost he wed, and the bird knew it too, and ah, you should have heard it sing. But it was a broken thing, and I made him swear he'd burn its spirit free, eat salt plums in its honor. I left him a widower, but he kept his inheritance— if there's a thread of sense in him, he's learned his lesson. I walked all the way here. No clever boat to carry me. No incense trees to beckon. Only my luck to feel the way. The city stretched itself out. Streets dried to hot clay and grown so, so long. But I walked them. And I could turn back around now and go home. I will if you tell me. But I'm no one's wife if you'll believe me. I'd be yours, your husband, your anything. But just come down out of there. In anger, Warissa came down, the anger of ruined fingers and long cold hours and marriage games. Or perhaps it was boldness, the boldness of shaking off old faces. Or, and I think this is the truth, it was both. They stood in the deepening street and realized they knew where they were. The place where telling stories to each other was no longer enough. What follows is their own affair. Isn't that satisfactory? That's the way of the city. It doesn't tell complete tales. But you might find pieces of this one in fragments from other tellers' tongues. Like those who write accounts of all the strange fish you can find there, all their blessings and curses, the crowfish that scream at dawn in bedside jars, or the long, leathery eels that were once men and should never be eaten by moonlight. And the most talked of, these days, the basketfish, scales so very much like weave, hollow of meat and pebble-eyed. There's a tale told about how they came to be, woven with wood and death and boldness into a sort of life, empty as wishes, hungry as love. They also speak of an alley-gliding monster, a red boat with fine lattice screens and grinning teeth, forever chasing basketfish. And why not? Perhaps it wants the chance to become something new, too. Because that's the blessing those basketfish bring, as the stories have it, if you manage to catch one as they flash fleetly by. <laughs> So we get copyright is Tory Tuzlos. Tory, thank you so much for that, and a big thank you to Scott over there at Beneath Caesar Skies for you know agreeing to let we play that in full as well. You know what I mean? That's a, a 
Scott, thank you so much. Don't forget, that story first appeared in Beneath the Sister Skies magazine and the audio version first appeared on Beneath Sister Skies audio fiction podcast. I recommend you go over there and subscribe to that. Do you know what I mean? Please do. That would be fantastic. Gentlemen, ladies, thank you so much. So that is the first two from the British Science Fiction's Short Story Award. Next week we have the, the next two that are up there. So if you if you kind of like them, you know, spread the word and maybe vote. Tell you which one you like the best. So until next week, I'd just like to say a good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Distortion Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. So I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and I've mentioned it for a while, a while now, and I haven't actually let on to kind of what I've been up to, but I've kind of, there was a project, and now there's two projects, kind of secret projects that I've been working on. And... One of them now, I'm ready to kind of, well, I'll have, if you follow us on Facebook and Twitter and things like that, you know what I mean? You'll, you'll know what the hell's going on. What's he doing? Well, it is soap. Yes, I am making soap. I kid you not. All unscented, natural, homemade, vegan soap. You know what I mean? There's nothing in there. And I want to kind of... Years ago, I was talking years ago, I kind of used to do little kind of creative things, you know what I mean? And that's actually part of like the, the second, you know, little venture that I'm going down. And I always miss that, you know, I love doing Starship Sober, but I like to kind of, you know, as I say, work with the hands. And I've, I've always fancied this, you know what I mean? How, how do you make it? How do you do it? Well, I just kind of sat down one day and started studying it and then having kind of practice goals it and things like that. And now, you know what I mean, there I am. I have a shop on Etsy selling the whole range of, like, unscented. There's no kind of smell to them. You know what I mean? They're kind of they're a, a soap that's just soap, but it's got, like, different properties in. You know what I mean? So one's good for skin, one's good for exfoliating. The whole works is in there. And it's funny, like I say, I put it, you know, I sent a bulk, bulk email out about a week ago and straight away and I never even didn't even click with this got emails back and you know people saying you shouldn't make a starship so fast and I was like oh, what a cracking idea do you know what I mean so I have done that well I've just yesterday today's Wednesday I don't know what the is it well I haven't got a clue what the date is <laughs> I'm gonna check now let's have a look it's the 2nd of April yesterday the 1st of April I <laughs> I didn't even realise that. Yes, I made the first batch of Starship Sofa's soap. And I put a little thing out on Facebook, you know, what what should we have a name? And, you know, there was a number of people, Starship Sofa. So that is what the soap is. I've got the labels there now. I've got 
Right. That's one of the first ones. There's, I'm going to make another batch. There's 22 in the batch there now, so I've got them doing... And I'm even taking bloody orders already. Man, it's just quite bizarre. So, and I've... <laughs> <laughs> don't know where how how do you end up? You know what I mean? Going to forty? I can't even. Am I forty seven or forty eight? Must be forty eight. Got to be guy making like soaps. Do you know what I mean? Where's this come from? And the wife just kind of you know when you you just pinch the bridge of your nose and you think oh no man Tony. So in me kind of hut workshop there now is. Making soaps. And like I say, I'm doing something else as well there, and I'll tell you about that in a couple of weeks' time. But that's what it is. Got myself a name, Sea Drift Soaps. And the whole idea is, I mean, I don't know if most of you know, I kind of live on the northeast coast of England, and the beach and the rocks and everything are just stone throw away, and I'm, yeah, I take the dogs down there all the time walking. And my kind of tagline is, I want to put the very ocean in the soaps. And I use all sorts from there, you know what I mean? I'm, I even put stones in some of the soaps, but I use seawater as well to make the soaps. You know, it's all natural stuff. And even the kind of the water I'm using is from the sea. And it's just, I'm, I'm really quite proud how it's took off. You know, I just put, like I say, I put an email out there, I put a few posts on, on Facebook and Twitter and got it. You know, and a big thank you to Scott, who's done all the kind of artwork and... That's been fantastic. Scott, man, well, thank you so much. If you just have a look at the soaps, there's been so many comments about, you know, how they look. Because I wanted them to look kind of rustic and everything like that, but I wanted a kind of, you know, an impact logo, and Scott's done just that. Excellent. And I never realised, you know what I mean, but I kind of got emails, Scott, Scott, can, can I have a logo for this? Can I have a logo for that? I need this, need that. I didn't realise how much work goes into a logo. Yeah, and it, with this seed with soaps, I think Scott like took us through the full process of you know what you do for a client, and well, I'd say sorry, Scott. You know what I mean? There's been so much work went into these to get a you know what the customer wants at the very end. It's just unreal how much work you know from like just the very basic draft designs going through other design, the amount of these like each individual logo that has been for this Sea Drift Soaps final logo is staggering, the work that's went into it. So thank you so much, Scott. And like I say, we've got, you know, I'm in the process now of doing the Starship Soapa soap, and we're going to do all that kind of fancy as well. We've got some, Scott's done the labels already for it. Going to do a few batches of it. And with this one, though, it's kind of different. I wanted to kind of make it a little bit different, you know, from the kind of the natural ones that I've got up there. So I've got, I have put some sense in this, just to give it like that little bit quirky difference. So if you are interested, <laughs> we have a little hints of vanilla, patchouli and sandalwood in that. And I'm rather impressed. I certainly am. And because when I do this, the normal batches, you know, the, the daughter especially, now why is the smell? There's no smell. And it's like, Ellie, but that's not the point. Not the point. The point is it's natural. You don't want smells. You don't. But with this one, I thought, just to make it different from all the rest, I'll add a few kind of, you know, essential oils there and, and get things crusted up a little bit. And it looks, honestly, man, it looks stunning, this bar. bar. Of soap. We've got to wait like four weeks for it to cure. So, but I will certainly be kind of mentioning about 
it about as well. And I think just like the other ones, they'll be priced at four pound, and I can basically get it anywhere in the in the world. But it's you know, postage is quite postage is more than the soap. Do you know what I mean? It's just unreal. But if you live in the UK, it's cheap as chips. I, you know, when you think about it, it's cheap as out. Um, you're getting a bar of soap from my good self. You know, if you live in kind of Australia, you'll get one. You know what I mean? So there you go. That is the project that I've been working on. And like I say, there's, a, there's an Etsy shop. Come over, I'll put a link on to that if you want to kind of go to my Etsy shop and see, you know, and see what we've done there and kind of how I've, I've you know, I packaged it and branded it. You know, it's quite interesting. Do you know what I mean? This, I've had, I'll, that's, I guess, one of my kind of one saving qualities. I can kind of think of things and I think, oh, that's how I want to do it. That's how I want to do it. I want to have this and that in it. So I'm quite proud of how it's turned out, you know, and how the soaps have turned out and how the soaps are selling. I did a, Rum, cinnamon one, and cloves soap. I bloody think sold out already. I've got. A, I've just made another batch, and that's the kind of difficult—not difficult, but you know—it takes like four weeks, five weeks to cure. You've got to, you know. And I've already like I say within the first three days, I've sold out this the the rum and cinnamon one and clove. So you know, you've got you just you've got to kind of get these things worked out. So that is the first project, Sea Drift Soaps. I haven't got a website at the moment. Possibly I'll get one, but it's all on Etsy. You can read all about it there because Etsy's quite good. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's kind of giving the people who come like a story so you can see how I did it. And, you know, you can, there's lots to read on my page as well at Etsy. And more importantly, you can get the soaps there as well. So, how about that? Starship Soapa. Soapa. Until I've said that already, haven't I? Just good, man. Done it. Right. See you next week. Goodbye.